if you're really lucky in life, uh, you'll be fortunate enough to meet, you know, some really good people along the way. And, and, you know, a super blessing is that they're not only good people, but they're talented or imaginative or fun, you know, but great to be around. And certainly uh, I have been lucky over the years and to have met a number of what I consider really good human beings who are talented and imaginative and who've also turned around and given something back to uh, their audience or their friends or families, the world. Uh, and so today I have the opportunity to talk with one of those people uh, who I shall uh, introduce you to in a moment uh, during that recording session that we did. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you to sit back because we did this once with Don McGregor and I let you know that a force of nature was about to come forth and there was going to be an explosion of information and everything. And that's great. Uh, now you're going to meet this next wonderful person who's also going to take us on a long trip into his past and his accomplishments and his challenges and some of the painful moments in his life. Um, and he's more, it's more like meeting the prophet along the lane. But either way, I hope you enjoy this interview with a dear friend, Tony Isabella. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled, 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 thrilled to bring to the microphone here once again the renowned, the fantastic, the funny, the, the joyous, the talented Mr. Tony Isabella. Say hello to everybody, Tony. Hello, everyone. <laughs> he, he, he cooperates so nicely. Uh, Tony, I got to start out by saying thank you tremendously for coming back to the mic because, folks, I blew it several days ago when Tony and I were talking and had the great interview, and then I went to listen to it later, and his track was almost non-existent. Uh, so obviously I did not get an engineering degree. Uh, I did not graduate from DeVry. You know, it didn't. So Tony's being nice, and he's come back, and thank you so much for this extra time, Tony. Happy to do it, brother. Oh, thank you, thank you. Now, I'm going to tell everybody, I've known Tony for many moons, and sons also, but definitely many moons, and I know a lot about him in terms of the kind of person he is and a lot of the work that he's done, uh, but actually I learned more when we were talking the other day, so I'm going to just take us back through that a bit, if you don't mind, sir. I do not mind. Okay, so, Tony Isabella, uh <laughs> You're known to many of the people who will listen to this as a great writer and as a creator of certain iconic comic book characters, which we will speak about just shortly down the line. But um, I like to sort of start with who you are and where you're from. So we know you're Tony. Where does Tony hail from? Uh, Tony Isabella was born in Cleveland, Ohio, at a time uh, when Cleveland was a very segregated city. Uh, he uh, worked, you know, he, he learned how to read comics before he was four. Uh, <laughs> he learned how to write about the same time. Um, Wait a minute, you, you, were he, reading, you were reading or being read too? I was, be, I was reading. <clears throat> before I was four, comic books were read to me by various adults in my life. I wanted to cut out the middleman. <laughs> So I paid attention, very close attention, as they were reading to me. And um, like Tarzan learning how to read from his parents' 
Oh, from Kala? <laughs> in the jungle, oh, okay. I learned how to read comic books. Uh, and uh, before long, once you can read, it's not a huge step to being able to write. Now, I will tell you, at the age of four, I was not the accomplished writer that I like to believe I am today. <laughs> but I could read and write by the age of four. Uh, I was actually in kindergarten before I was five uh, because my mother had had another, had had a couple more kids, and you know it was just easier to get me out of, to get you know me out of the house sooner. So you're the oldest. Well, would, pardon? You're the oldest. I am the second oldest. Ah. Uh, we will not speak excessively of my of my birth family, as I call them, uh, for reasons that I could tell you about sometime when it's just you and I. Gotcha, gotcha, um, okay. But in kindergarten, I would be frequently pulled out of class to entertain visitors to the school. <laughs> the principal would pull me out of class and show off how I could read and how I could write as if she had a damn thing to do with it. <laughs> So as if but, she was saying, this is what this school can do for yeah, your children. Yeah. Look at him. Oh, geez. I mean, I might not have known the word, but I knew it was bullshit. <laughs> but on the other hand, it got me out of the boring kindergarten classes. So I went along with it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. All right. So now this uh, was elementary school, obviously. This was this was uh, Louis Agassiz Elementary School, which was a public school. Then uh, for first grade uh, and up and through eighth grade, I was at St. Philip and James Elementary School. Still remembers uh, the names. I did, uh, I did eight years and seven years because uh, I got, you know, promoted early again. Ah. Then I went to St. Edward High School where I had some excellent teachers and some jerks, but mostly excellent teachers <laughs> who encouraged my writing. Uh, about the time, uh, you know, in grade school and high school, I was, you know, writing comic book strip scripts. I, I have to backtrack. In 1963, um, on a very boring family vacation, uh, I was buying comics at every stop along the way because in July of 1963, you could do that. Every yes. place had comic books. That's right. Dime stores and, and candy stores and... All that, yeah. Uh, so I, you know, my parents got very upset over me spending my souvenir money on comic books, even though it was my souvenir money. Mm. So when we got to our final destination, a sleepy little town called Oneonta, New York, uh, which as near as I can tell, nothing of import has ever happened. <laughs> uh, but my father's <laughs> uncle had a cigar and magazine shop, and when we got there... My parents, uh, you know, I headed for the comics rack immediately. I was grabbed by my mother who said, you can only buy one more comic on this trip. Oh, jeez. Well, being, so, being like, you know, uh, prickly, let's say, I was determined to buy a quarter comic because I would show them. I can only buy one more comic? Fine. I'll buy one that costs 15 cents more. That, well, at that point, it's probably 13 cents more. Than the regular comic. What, what, what um, were the regular comics going for? Ten? Ten or twelve cents. Ah, yes, I remember it well. Mm, okay. And um, and so the only quarter comic that I didn't have that I had any interest in because I wasn't interested in in 
the Archie quarter books or any of the Harvey quarter books uh, was Fantastic Four Annual Number One. I was so defiant that I bought that, even though I'd read one issue of Fantastic Four prior to that and hadn't liked it at all. It was a Fantastic Four Number Seven, Kurgo Master of Planet X, and it just was so different from everything else that I didn't like it. Uh, oh but I bought God. FF Annual Number One and must have read it a dozen times over. Because oh something goodness. clicked. It was a great comic. It had the 37-page Submariner uh, versus the Human Race, uh, which is the longest comic story I had read up to that point, uh, by Stanley and Jack Kirby and Dick Ayers. It had a reprint of the FF Origin. Uh, it had a retelling of when the FF first met Spider-Man. It had all these back pages about villains and the heroes in their world, and, and it was an introduction to this whole new world. And somewhere, maybe around the eighth time I read this book on the weekend, um, it dawned on me that making comic books was a job and that it was a job I really wanted. So wow. when I got back from that vacation... How old were you at that point? I was, uh, let's see, 63. I would have been 12. Okay, okay. And so I started teaching myself how to write comic books. Uh, I found friends who could draw, and we would uh, put every two months, my two buddies, Terry Fairbanks, Mike Hudak, and I would put together a comic book we called Marvel Madhouse, featuring our own characters. We'd have one copy of this, and we would send it to Stan Lee. Oh, my goodness. And, and Stan and other people in the bullpen would send it back to us with very nice, encouraging letters. Uh, it's actually my, I think that was my first contact with Roy Thomas, who would go on to become a friend and a mentor. So wait a minute, uh, they would, you would send this one single copy yes. off to New York? Yes. And you got it back with notes? Yes. Jeez. With a note. Comics Amazing. were different back then, Alex. Yeah, obviously. The comic industry was different. <laughs> I, I think they were just probably blown away that these kids in Cleveland were doing this. Oh, uh, I know I, I would have been if people were sending me, you know, comics like that when I was finally in the offices. Yeah, but think anyway, about it, it's so bi-monthly, too. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you were doing yeah. bi-monthly comics. If if I wasn't if if I weren't so lazy and, and not going and not also going to school uh, where where I was getting straight A's and such because uh, I had the I had the double curse I was the shortest kid in class and the smartest kid in class. Oh jeez! So I got beat down a lot. Yeah, I was thinking, but I didn't want to say. You know. No, I got beat down a lot. Uh, plus, I was living in a neighborhood where we were pretty much the first Italians to move into this neighborhood. And this was the era of Elliot Ness and the Untouchables oh, on TV. with Rico so and, all yeah. Italians oh, were gangsters. Yeah. Um, oh, Robert so. Stack, we forgive you. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, I went through high school, um finding ways to incorporate comics into my schoolwork. Uh, I wrote, like, a, I think an eight-page comic strip uh, called Math Man for my term paper <laughs> and and got an A. Oh and in history, I wrote about the comics going to war and got an A. Um, and, you know, I mean, it was, it was still the days where, where, you know, being known as a comics fan would get you pushed into a locker. 
Um, well, well, wait a minute. Now you were you were the as you just pointed out a little while ago. You were the only Italian family surrounded well, this by is in grade school. This is in grade in school. grade school. Okay, so surrounded by Irish, Polish, and again because Cleveland was very segregated. Uh, I I my first African American friends, my first black friends, were comic book fans who came from the east side of Cleveland to the west side of Cleveland to attend uh, the comic book club meetings that I was holding at the Cadell Recreation Center on the west side of Cleveland. So, so Cleveland uh, was divided but west and east? Yes, that was pretty much the division. Uh, there were wealthy whites in some eastern suburbs, uh, but there were very few blacks on the west side of Cleveland at that point. When white flight came in, uh, you know, a lot of families moved to the suburbs and blacks started coming into the neighborhood along with Hispanics and, and others. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I went through high school, uh, went to college uh, for a year, for less than a year, because the only class that I was really interested in was my writing class. And when I turned in my first paper, uh, my my writing teacher was my the teacher was young. She was twenty nine thirty. She she read my first uh, assignment and asked me, "Is this what you do all the time?" And I go, "Yes." And she said, "Don't come into my class. I can't teach you anything. Here's a list of assignments. Just turn them in at my office." Oh, okay, all and right. At the same time, my father, who was the only member of my family who who supported me and and was proud of, of what I was trying to do. Uh, he actually built me an office in the basement so that I could write, uh, you know, a place to keep my comics and a place where I could write without the rest of the family around. So your father got it, whatever it was. My father got it. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. Um, when my father was in World War II, um... He was a clerk, and he was not particularly good at paperwork. He got better at it because he had to, because he took over the family bakery. Uh, and um, so he'd be working late at night, and back then, of course, the services were segregated, and a black soldier would come in to clean the office and everything. And the black soldier actually owned his own business back in the States. So as long as there was no other officer around, the black soldier would do the paperwork and my father would do the cleaning up. Uh-huh. Uh, that's okay. the kind of man my father was. I'm not saying he didn't have his prejudices because he did. He was raised a Roman Catholic and, uh, you know, they, they have, you know, I'm a, an extremely lapsed Catholic and not likely to ever go back. Um, but you know, some of his prejudices, such as against gays and things like that came from, from that upbringing. But, but he was the least prejudicial member of my family uh, and remained very proud of my work to the day I died. Other family members were either jealous or annoyed that, that I spent so much of my career working on characters of color. Uh, but anyway, enough of that. Uh, so I went to work for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. That's the newspaper, right? That was after, after I quit college. I went to work for the Cleveland Plain Dealer as a copy assistant, more commonly known back then as copy boy. Uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer was the newspaper of the rich and the wealthy. 
or the rich and the powerful. Uh, there were editors and reporters there who delighted in yelling out boy when they needed a copy assistant, this despite the fact that there were blacks among the copy assisted um, set. And, and it wasn't until one new member of the copy desk, new guy was hired for the copy desk who had come from New York and, and sided with us and from that point on, uh, if somebody needed us, they yelled out copy. Mm. Um, I wrote a few things for the Plain Dealer, including a full-page article on the Green Lantern, Green Arrow um, drug issues of the seven. That was the, the one that, uh, that was Ninny and Deal, uh, Denny O'Neill and, and Neil Adams? Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Right. Um, a few months later, I pitched him on an article on Luke Cage, uh, who, who, that I was very excited about Luke Cage, and um, they said, well, we just ran a, an article on comics last year. How times have changed. <laughs> we went on strike. Um, the publisher of the paper called up his good buddy, the mayor, and said, hey, these people, they're in front of our building. Do something. Uh, so we got attacked by mounted policemen. Um, a copy editor near knocked me to the ground in his fearful flight. Uh, a horse's hoof landed inches from my face. Uh, I dusted myself off, went back to my apartment. Because you were living point, on your own by that point? I was living on my own. Uh, I was actually dating a black woman who worked at the plane dealer and knew my parents would not accept her and knew, and quite frankly, her family wouldn't accept me either. It was ever Equal opportunity thing. bigotry there, I see. Okay. Equal opportunity bigotry. Yeah. and But we had fun. You know, we enjoyed each other's company. Uh, it, it didn't go anywhere, uh, but it was nice, and it got me out of my parents' house. Uh, in fact, it, down the street from where I lived was a head shop. And uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, <laughs> Tony got into drugs. No, what I got into were underground comics, because uh -huh. the head shop sold underground comics. So in addition, at that point, I was single. I was making a decent living. I was buying every mainstream comic I could find, and because I wanted to work in comics, and I didn't care how. So I read all the Archies. I read all the Harveys. I read all the Charlton, Romance, War. You know, whatever the genre, I bought it, and then I added underground comics to that. So, so now you're reading Felix, the, uh, not Felix, but the Fritz the Cat. and Fritz and the Cat and... and uh, some, and some of Harvey pa uh, Packard's work, too? Well, Harvey Picard started after... His stuff started after I, I moved back to Cleveland from New York. Oh, but okay. We'll get, we'll get to that. This is an epic story <laughs> of Tony Isabella's life. And we're not breaking so anyway, for commercials, either, so go for it. Yeah. So so after after the almost being stepped up by a horse, I called up Roy Thomas, who I'd become friendly with, and said, are there any kind of jobs at Marvel? And... Uh, you know, even an entry-level position. He says, well, Stan needs somebody to work on him with the uh, British weeklies, which I had no idea what they were. And what they were was uh, reprints of Marvel Comics produced in the offices of Marvel Comics, and then the boards would be shipped to England where they would appear as weekly newsprint magazines. And so this is repurposing material that Marvel was doing? Repurposing material. You'd split, because British weeklies generally had many stories, uh, we would have three, at least three features per issue, and we would have to cut stories in, into pieces. 
and uh, that often inquired, meant that you'd have to write a new splash page. Um, so I was writing new splash pages. I was keeping track of the stories, which you could do back then because it had only been 10 years of Marvel superhero comics at that point. Mm. Um, I would I would work on covers. I'd write cover copy. I'd write letters pages. I'd write puzzle pages. I was basically, you know, the editor of this magazine, of these magazines. And by the time I left that part of my Marvel job, I was editing three weeklies a, uh, a week. Um, and Stan, Stanley liked my work on him. Um, so did Roy Thomas and Saul Brodsky. You know, I couldn't have asked for three better teachers. Right. Uh, staff pay was for crap. So, <laughs> so they gave you plenty of freelance opportunities, which usually meant starting out writing articles for the black and white, uh, magazines that we were, that we were just starting, uh, writing short mystery stories, um, Wait a minute, I'm sorry, short mystery stories for what publication? Uh, things like uh, Chambers of Chills, which was one of the color-lined line, and then there were, of course, the black and white magazines like Dracula Lives and Monsters Unleashed. Gotcha, okay. Um, you know, I also was called on to do some emergency fill-in work. Um, Captain America, uh, there was an issue of Captain America. Englehart was late on his deadline, so uh, a not infrequent occurrence. Uh, Roy plotted a story and started scripting it, but ran out of time, so I finished scripting it. This was the story that introduced Baron Zemo's son, who went on to become a, a pretty major villain in the Marvel Universe. Uh, so there'd be things like that where I would fill in. Um, and eventually I started getting regular assignments. I, I did Ghost Rider for a couple of years. I, I did a run on Daredevil. I did The Living Mummy. Uh, I did a very short-lived It the Living Colossus, and I did an awful lot of short stints on things. Um, I did Luke. I did uh, several issues of Luke Cage, Power Man. Well, now with, I, with Luke Cage, who introduced the character in Marvel? I mean, where did it? Was that you, or was no, it, no, no? I did not create Luke Cage. That was um, a combination of Roy Thomas. Archie Goodwin, Stan, of course, had input. Uh, John Romita designed the costume. Uh, George Tuska drew the first issue. I remember Billy that, Graham yeah. inked it, and I think, I don't know for sure, I think Billy was also involved at some st early stage, whether it was just to, you know, people asking him, is this okay? Um, and so, you know, uh, Archie Goodwin started writing the book. He turned it over to, to Steve Englehart. Uh, I actually finished Englehart's run because he had, he had left the book, and there were two issues more to go of Hero for Hire. Len Wein took over the, the rename Luke Cage Power Man, wrote an issue or two, and then I took over that book until I got too busy with other stuff. Mm. Um, of all the assignments that, that I had to walk away from, the two that that bother me the most uh, are Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Because with Luke Cage, I, I, I was working a plan to, to clear Luke's name and, and send him back to school and make him more of a positive force in the community. Mm. And in Iron Fist, I created Misty Knight to be a partner, not a romantic interest, but a partner to Iron Fist. And I was very proud of those characters. Now, that said, I created Misty Knight, but Chris Claremont did all the heavy lifting on the character. 
I see. And, and so Chris, Chris is responsible for the character's success. I'm keeping the royalty money, <laughs> but I try to give credit to Chris whenever possible. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's nice. You should take him to lunch or dinner, you know, too. That would I, be... I hope to see him in New York. I'll be in New York uh, in March at the uh, Big Apple Comic Con, and if Chris is there. Uh, You'll I take will him to lunch. take him to lunch. Yeah, okay. He's a good guy. He was my assistant editor when I was editing Marvel, some of Marvel's black and white uh, comics magazines and was way more qualified to be editor than I was. Well, you know, uh, I, will, I will accept that because, hey, you were, you know, that's you and you were there. I, I am kind of curious, though, um, what, you're, what you've laid out from, from early days of reading at age of four uh, to now is at times there's this influx of people of color in your life, and and yet you were coming up in a time that was not, you know, a devoid of that, but still it wasn't necessarily what oh, was going uh, on all over. You'll have to go back on this question. My daughter just unexpectedly came home, and I have to tell her that I'm being interviewed. Kelly? Kelly? I'm being interviewed. So I'll talk to you as soon as the interview's done. I love you. Okay. I'll keep that on. <laughs> yeah, keep it. Go ahead. Go ahead. So My daughter's it, a wonderful young lady. Yeah, I suspect she is. Mine is too. I'm I'm, I'm rather fond of her, as a matter of fact. Um, I, what I was trying to say is, you, you know, you you're you're this individual who was growing up in a segregated environment, with, uh, as you pointed out, a family that wasn't necessarily, you know, kumbaya. And, and then yet, through comics and then through, you know, just living and working, you had a relationship with blacks, and then you come to New York and you're working for Marvel, and then you, you're working with Luke Cage on a character. What, what, what's going on here? Didn't you at any point wonder where this was coming from, or, or did you have a... You know, where, you... My, where my interest in characters of color uh, came was my, my first black friends. Um, diversity was not part of my language. I was 17 or 18. Uh, I just thought it was unfair that my black friends didn't have more characters like them, like themselves in the comics. Um, they did not know that they were so pivotal in, in my career until recently. One of them, Dennis Knowles, is a producer for the local PBS station, and he did a segment on me. And that was the first time he learned that he and, and Bruce Burke and Leroy Creighton uh, were the reason I, you know, because I told myself if I got in the comics, I wanted to, to work on and create characters of color. Um, because so of I the said, people I, in your life who you called friends and, and what, they were not, certainly I know what comics were like at that time, you felt they were not properly represented? Not, yeah, I think at that point there was... Uh, I'm trying to think. There, there, okay, there would have been Black Panther, but not in his own book. Gabe and um, Sergeant Fury. There would have been the Falcon, but not in his own book. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Black Green Lantern, John Stewart, would have been around um, as an occasional guest star. There just weren't a lot of black characters. As far as, as getting romantically involved with a black woman, that was just, you know, we worked together and we hit it off. And, and you know, for the two of us, at least, if not you know, not our families, obviously, but for two of us, you know, race never was an issue. Mm -hmm. We liked each other. Um, so the question and, isn't really 
why why how can you step outside of that it's why not yeah 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 and why not and the writers the writing staff at marvel back then was mostly young progressive writers i mean you know our mutual friend don mcgregor was was breaking boundaries faster than anybody else <laughs> uh, mcgregor works at his own speed yes. <laughs> well but but stanley you know Introduced black characters, Roy Thomas did, Engelhart. I mean, just right down the line. And sure, there'd be missteps. Uh, like, I don't know who decided that Luke Cage's best friend should be named after a director of the racist Birth of a Nation. Um, I didn't know about Birth of a Nation until after I stopped writing Luke Cage, because I would have gotten rid of that character. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were a progressive lot, and... Um, I know when uh, I introduced Bill Foster into the Luke Cage book, Bill Foster had been introduced in the Avengers, working with Hank Pym. I needed a strong opponent for, for Luke Cage, so I decided Bill Foster had uh, been drinking the growth serum, and, and turned out he was um, Claire Temple's ex-husband. So it was like a natural conflict. Uh, and then, you know, when Marvel was desperate for new books, they wouldn't let me call... Bill Foster's superhero identity, Giant Man, which is what I wanted to do. Uh, Giant Man had apparently sold very badly in Tales to Astonish. Uh. And so, you know, I had, you know, they suggested, I think, I think they brought up Goliath and then it ended up becoming Black Goliath because Goliath didn't seem catchy enough. And it was the 70s. Yes, right. Yeah. Because you only yeah. know people are black if they're called black, you know. That Right, right. Uh, and, of course, we have to show lots of skin on their costumes. Uh, I could pretty much, you know, I can pretty much, you know, deny blame for that since I wasn't drawing them. I, I hear you. Or designing the costumes. I, I have a buddy um, named Jerry Kraft who's a, a, he was a comic strip artist and writer. He's now got a book out um, called The New Kid, which is doing great guns. But anyway, Jerry did this great flash animation piece about black superheroes at that time and one of the jokes in it was you know the the the, the low cut shirts and all that what about that flesh thing so yeah it believe me it didn't it did not go unnoticed yeah, yeah. so so with black Goliath, you know when when you know we did the black Goliath book and it didn't last long i only wrote the first issue because i was moving on to other things constantly and in fact i had moved i had moved back to cleveland because after four or so years in New York, I just didn't really want to live in New York anymore. I was spending all my time either playing or working, uh, and I was afraid I'd get burned out real quick. Uh, you were living uh, li living a bit of a hard life there? Was, my apartment was broken into while I was in it, and I got beaten up. That was a, a big oh, factor, geez. too. Oh. Um, but anyway, so Black Alive was to be a step up to what I wanted. I love the Black Panther. He was an African prince. I didn't know how relatable that would be to, to most kids. Uh, Luke Cage was a great character, but he was next con. Um, the Falcon, in the stupidest single thing Steve Englehart ever did in his long and mostly wonderful career, was to decide that the Falcon had been a criminal as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wrote The Living Mummy, which... Nobody really realized he was black because, you know, mummy. Uh, <laughs> and then so, so Black Goliath was a step up. And then, um, you know, things were chaotic at Marvel. Um, you know, Roy Thomas was, was my favorite editor-in-chief up there. 
Len Wein and Marv Wolfman were friends of mine, but, but you know, there was tension there. I was a perennial, I guess they saw me as a perennial rival, and I saw myself as an asset, and I just thought it would be easier if I got out of uh, New York. That was another reason for leaving New York. Plus, I had met, you know, the love of my life, Barbara Kepke, who I eventually married. Um, but, you know, I came back to New York briefly because Marvin stepped down. Jerry Conway was the editor for like three weeks. Uh, and Jerry had made me a very good offer, which involved an awful lot of work, more than I actually wanted to do. Uh, at the same time, I had an offer from DC Comics. Jeanette Kahn had come in there, and they were looking to hire some new talent. Uh, I, I Jeanette did the Vertigo to, line? No, this was this was well past the Vertigo line. Ah, I okay. mean, well before, excuse me, well oh, before. Oh, thank you, okay. This, we're talking like 1975, 76. Okay, okay. Uh, so so um, I took the DC offer. I figured, you know, things weren't going to get any less chaotic at Marvel. The fact that Jerry Conway was only editor for three weeks will give you an idea of how chaotic <laughs> it could be. Um, and I felt there were people at DC I really admired, including some people like Murray Boltonoff, who had been very kind to me when I was a fan. Um, so I decided to take the DC offer, but I told DC not to you know, make any announcements uh, until I went, because I felt I owed it to Jerry to turn down his offer face-to-face. Ah, okay. I walk into Jerry's office, and it's one of those, I let him talk, I let him fire me before I could quit. Uh, as it turned out, Jerry did not have the control of the writing that he thought he had. There were people who had contracts guaranteeing them, guaranteeing them vast amounts of work, and Jerry could do nothing about taking that work and giving it to anyone else. Uh, plus, Jerry had a contract that he needed quite a bit of work himself or wanted quite a bit of work. So not only was the old offer off the table, but he needed my books for other people, including Wait, himself. So he needed the work that he was originally going to give to you to take care of these other the people with contracts. Doing. He apparently even needed the work that I was already doing. He ended up writing Ghost Rider, um, and there were a few other things like, you know, uh, Champions went to Bill Mantlo, who, who they had to keep busy. Um, I, I can't remember what my, where my other assignments went, but yeah. So all my assignments were pretty much taken away from me. Um, is, is this? I'm sorry. I just want to you know, because you know the world that a lot of people know about now has a lot more. You know the freelancers, quote unquote, have a little bit more say, or they they there's there's creator own material. There's a lot of other things going on. But in this time, was a good deal of the work work oh, for hire? Oh, oh, Alex, Alex, Alex. Things have not changed that much. You're listening to the big glowing head and ignoring the man behind the big glowing head running the equipment. Uh-huh. Uh, Pay no attention yes, to that man behind yes, the curtain. If you, are the, if you are the flavor of the month, if you are somebody they find useful, uh, you can accomplish things. The minute you're not useful, they will cut you to the curb. Mm. Um, anyway, so... You know, at that time, you know, I wasn't, you know, Jerry thanked me for taking it so well because I, I didn't see any reason to bring up the fact that I had accepted this D.C. offer. 
Jerry, in, in one of the kindest bad things anyone could have ever done to me, proceeded to call up DC Comics, tell them that he had let me go, but that I'd probably, you know, and, and for a reason having nothing to do with my ability, he thought I was one of their best writers, but he had these contracts that he had to honor, including his own, although I'm sure he didn't mention that. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and basically, in the time it took me to walk from Marvel offices to DC office, the DC offices, stopping for a hot dog and a soda, um, I love New York City hot dogs. I know they're no damn good for you, but I love them. <laughs> um, my deal disappeared. Your deal at DC? It disappeared. Oh, they, they, you know, my page rate got cut by $3 a page. It was actually lower than my Marvel page rate at the, after this. Uh, assignments on things like Batman and Justice League disappeared. I doubt they'd ever told jo Julie Schwartz that they were giving me those books. I don't think Julie would have had a big problem with it. Uh, and, you know, they, you know, it was, it was not, it was, not the first time DC reneged on its agreements with me. Um, while I was there looking for work, you know, because they wanted they wanted me to work for them, but you know, but they just taken the work deal away. Yeah, but they wanted me to do other stuff. I mean, they asked me to write a Korak story uh, for Tarzan Family. It ended up appearing in the last issue of Tarzan Family. I did a few ghost jobs for for writers who were late. Um, and then they handed me, oh, this is a wonderful story. Okay. They handed me two scripts that had been prepared by Jerry Conway when he was an editor at DC before he went to Marvel and Robert Kaniger. Okay. These are two great writers, good guys. Okay. I will never tell you that what they did was malicious in any way. It was a case of, they're too damn close to the material, and they don't realize what it actually is. I was handed two completed scripts, edited by Jerry, written by Bob, of a character called the Black Bomber. The Black Bomber was a white racist mm -hmm. who, while serving in Vietnam, took place in chemical camouflage experiments designed to help him blend into the jungle better. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh. Pace, pace yourself, this gets worse. Uh, nothing happened while he was in Vietnam. But when he comes back to the States, um, at various times, he turns into a black superhero. Mm -hmm. he, does not, he does not know he does this. The black superhero doesn't know that he's actually a white guy. Each identity has a girlfriend who witnesses the change and says nothing. Oh, jeez. I'm a very inclusive guy. You know, I, I like to think I'm so woke, woke I have insomnia. Oh. But, you know, if my significant other undergoes a change like that, yeah. I'm going to ask a question. <laughs> yeah. Maybe several questions. Yeah, or run. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't run that much. I mean, it probably gets me into trouble, but I get curious Curiosity overcomes fear most of the times in my life. Um, in addition to this, in each of the two scripts, in his white racist identity, 
Uh, this guy saves someone he can't see clearly. He can't see clearly at the time he saves them, and then when he realizes he has risked his life to save a black person, he is incensed. Um, in one of the scripts, he saves a baby in a baby carriage. Um, White and black. A black baby in a baby carriage, and when he sees that it's black, because he couldn't see before. He goes, you mean I risked my life for a jungle bunny? If I'm lying, I am dying. That is in the script. Oh, what was the purpose of this? And the, well, they were trying to do their take on the watermelon man. And actually a pretty good film starring Godfrey Cambridge. You sure it's not uh, the man with two brains or two heads? The no, no, no. Ray Milan and... This is very clearly the watermelon man. Um, oh, God. And... And, you know, to make things worse, they, they gave me a drawing of a costume that had been designed for this character, and it was basically a basketball uniform. Oh, oh okay. All right, this is starting to hurt. <laughs> oh, it, 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 I, I read these scripts. They wanted me to punch them up. Not and out. And take over up. the book with okay. the third issue. Yeah. And I said, you cannot publish these scripts. And they go, Why? We paid for them. I go, they are the most offensive scripts I have ever read. Uh, if you publish this book, people will come to your offices with pitchforks and torches. And they go, how could you know that? And I go, I will be leading them. <laughs> this argument went on for two weeks. Oh. Until finally I boiled it down to you. Do you really want your first headline black superhero? to be a white racist. And I guess that made it simple to, to understand that no, that was a bad idea. So I basically had two reasons, two two weeks to create Black Lightning. That's where Black Lightning came from? That's where Black Lightning came from. I took nothing oh. from the Black Bomber. Um, but I wanted a character that would be very familiar to kids, which is why Jefferson Pierce is a school teacher. Uh, because he would be fighting a criminal gang, I used the 100, which actually Bob Canninger had created while he was writing Rose and the Thorn in the back of Lois Lane. I remember that um, series, yeah. He was going to be fighting, you know, street-level, you know, gangsters. Uh, he needed to be athletic enough to do that, and so I decided he was a former Olympic athlete. In fact, I mean, he, he apparently uh, medaled in two different Olympics, um, and never made any money off it. Now, we never covered that in the comic. I never got around to explaining that in the comic. But in my mind, I knew, because I knew everything about Jefferson Pierce and the world he lived in. Mm -hmm. um, he was one of the athletes who gave the Black Power salute there you go. after winning a medal at the Olympics and was essentially you know, barred from the sport. I was Nobody, you didn't know, say blackballed, yeah. Now, I didn't say black ball. I thought it, you know, <laughs> but I didn't say that because I thought that would be an inappropriate pun. You know, well, uh, I said it. <laughs> and then you said it. Yeah, yeah. So they'll come for me. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, so I knew everything about Jefferson Pierce. Um, and it was about two hours before the pitch meeting, the meeting where I was pitching him to Joe Orlando and Sal Harrison. Uh, 
I mean, everybody knew I'd create a new black superhero. They didn't know the details. When I suddenly realized I had not given him a superhero identity, which a superhero kind of needs to have. It helps. So I'm wandering through the offices, and in Julie Schwartz's office, uh, I happen to see a rough sketch for a future Wonder Woman cover. And it's got Wonder Woman lassoing a black lightning bolt and saying something like, Hera, help me stop this black lightning from destroying the city. And again, this is the 70s. I go, black lightning, that's catchy. I'd totally forgotten that it was the name of, of Johnny Thunder's horse in in the DC Western comics. Uh, and I said, black lightning, that's catchy, that works. And I came up with all the, the electrical aspects of the character in the two hours before I pitched the character. Jeez. I pitched the character D- to DC. Uh, they loved it. We struck an agreement that we were supposed to be equal partners. Uh, I was supposed to get, you know, 20% of any money DC made on the character outside of comic books. Um, I don't want to get into a long sort of thing because it's already going to be your longest podcast ever. Um, <laughs> you didn't listen to the McGregor one. Suffice to say, <laughs> DC has almost never honored its agreements with me, and this Ouch. was no different. Um, but Black Lightning rem- remains the creation I am proudest of. I've written him on three separate occasions. I, I wrote him in the 70s, I wrote him in the 90s, and I recently wrote a series called Black Lightning Cold Dead Hands, where I rebooted the character, made him younger, smarter, and moved him to my hometown of Cleveland. Uh, okay. Where, where in 2018 I was one of Cleveland Magazine's most interesting people, which is a big-ass deal in Cleveland. (laughs) Um, I'll give you a quick funny story about the photo shoot for that. We had a party. They invited all the interesting people. The really interesting people on the list didn't show up. Uh, I was there. Well, then that's all they needed. Yeah, and the photographers took like 50 pictures of me and then asked me to strike a superhero pose, which I did. (laughs) And as I I walked out of the photo area, I told Barb, my wife Barb, that's the one they're going to use. And she goes, no, no, the others were so much better. I said, that's the one they're going to use, and we will be lucky if they don't Photoshop lightning bolts coming out of my hands. Well, they didn't Photoshop the lightning bolts, but later on fans would take that picture and do that. Uh, <laughs> and I actually used the, the fan doctored photo of myself quite a bit in, in promoting myself. I have to find but, one for the podcast now. Yes, it, it'll be pretty easy. <laughs> Just um, Anyway, so it's a character I'm proudest of. The TV series is, is wonderful in so many ways. Um, yeah, I was going to come towards that. You know, I was. I know. I figured. I figured. Now, I'll t- while you formulate your next questions, <laughs> I'm going to take a drink and catch a breath, and and then I'll answer your questions. Well, you know, you 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 done so well here, and I, again, uh, we pick up on the friends uh, you wanting to create characters of color to, to sort of you know, honor the, the, the friends of yours and, and realizing they weren't as well represented, you, you, your personal life involved a little of that, you then have this moment at D.C. where they, they almost release something that I, I think, even if you weren't leading the crowd, there would have been a crowd of pitchforks and torches, for sure. 
Uh, and, I like to think so. Yeah, and you save the day there for them, and you create this iconic character, which has you know, been around for quite some time, and finally it gets this next big step. It comes to... I mean, because I know it's been in animation, although there's a story that you told me once about that. Uh, it had a shot at animation, and then something else happened. So just uh, before we get to this successful television show, what was that little interval there? Okay. Black Lightning in animation. I was told that Black Lightning would be a member of the Super Friend, which was a show that Hanna-Barbera was had been doing and was going to expand upon. Right, with the Wonder Twins uh, and all that. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and I was told, you know, and so I tuned into the first episode, you know, looking forward to seeing Black Lightning on the cartoon. And instead, there's a character called Black Vulcan. I remember and that. what happened. Uh, DC, let's, and I'm going to talk in abstract numbers here. Okay. Let's say DC had 10 characters in Super Friends. I would have gotten 20, and let's say Black Lightning was one of those 10 characters. I would have gotten 20% of their 10% of what they were paid for Black uh, for Black Lightning. Just for Black Lightning? Yes. Right, well, okay. It, it would be 20% yeah, 10, of what they got paid for Black Lightning, but of course Black Lightning would only represent 10% of what they got paid. Right. DC did not want to pay me out of their cut, and they told Hanna-Barbera that they would have to pay extra. That Hanna-Barbera would have to pay that extra money. Would have to pay extra money for Black Lightning, and Hanna-Barbera, notoriously cheap, uh, said, no, we'll just steal the character, and DC let them do it. Oh. Uh, this is why the... Now, I didn't know... I don't really consider Hanna-Barbera at fault there. That was DC's bad. Uh, but my last issue of my first Black Lightning series, because I quit the book at that point, um, was had Black Lightning fighting a con artist named Barbara Hanna, who was going around the country with a phony Black Lightning. Oh, um, and I'm am still amazed that DC published that. Uh, but Joe Orlando, Joe Orlando knew what I was doing. He was the you know big editorial guy then. He knew what I was doing, and, and Joe approved. Uh, and Jack C. Harris was just the darling of an editor. He wasn't going to be the one to tell me I couldn't do that. Um, oh, God. Okay, okay. So then, uh, so that, you know... The pen being mightier than the sword. <laughs> yes. Um, then in the 90s, uh, Dick Giordano was running things, and he asked me to bring back Black Lightning. And with Eddie Newell, I, I did what I thought at that time was the best work I had ever done. Uh, about six weeks before the first issue shipped... Uh, I just turned in the script for number nine, uh, and I was fired because the editor, uh, who I called Pat the Rat, uh, wanted to basically bring in his own person. This was his way of building power at DC. He would fire existing writers to bring in people beholden to him. Um, Why were you fired? I was, the reason given was lateness. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Wait, the first issue hadn't shipped, and you were turning issue in issue shipped. nine? Yes, I was fired for lateness. Jeez, okay, okay. Uh, again, it's, you know, as I tell people, forget it, Jake, it's D.C. town. Uh, wow. It's never made sense, and it never will. So, you know, 
years pass by. I'm constantly fighting with DC for royalties. Uh, they don't pay me on most of what they owe me. And then there's a change in management. And people who had been working against me, people who had turned down offers to make movies, Black Lightning movies, people who prevented Black Lightning from appearing on shows like Static Shock and uh, Justice League Unlimited, that was gone. That administration was gone. Uh, and, and there were three people running D.C. at that point, G Jeff Johns, uh, Dan DiDio, and Jim Lee. Jeff Johns was pretty much handling TV and stuff. Jeff Johns wanted to do a Black Lightning TV show. Hmm. But Jeff Johns, being a terrific writer and a very honorable human being, did not want to do a TV show if I wasn't happy. Uh, so Jeff Johns, you know, I told my story to Jeff Johns. He checked out the claims I made, found out they were accurate. Uh, and DC and I started working, you know, started working on an agreement. Uh, I did something I was too stupid to do before and hired a lawyer to, to do the negotiating for me. And it took about a year and a half. But we got a contract, that an agreement that I think is very fair to both parties. Mm. Neither side got everything they wanted. Um but I started working for DC before this was finalized. Uh, Jeff asked me to write a core value statement for Black Lightning. And now I have to tell you, from the moment I created Black Lightning, I thought he could be a TV series. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think, you know, I, I thought it was something that was in the realm of possibility this could be filmed. This could appear on TV. Uh, and now 40 years, almost 40 years later, it was likely to happen. So I wrote the core values paper, which in many ways is the start of the TV show. Uh, they hired Salim and Mara Brocka Keel, two brilliant showrunners. Uh, and I had hours of conference calls with them. Uh, Salim flew me into Burbank to spend a day with the writer's room before they really started writing scripts for the series. At that point, all that had been done was the 20-minute uh, trailer so that they used to sell the series to the CW. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, you know, I walked in the writer's room, and there's the first season, 13 episodes, very roughly laid out. And just glancing at that board, I see an awful lot of me in the board. Excellent. I also saw the two characters were supposed to be killed off that are still around, and they're still around because the actors were just too damn good. <laughs> um, on the other side of the room are all these blow-ups of, of characters and names of characters, and about half of them are mine, and about half of the other, almost the other half are characters Mike Barr created when he was writing Batman and the Outsiders. So Ohio rules, Mike Barr being an acrid boy. Um, there you and, go. And question, I, I was grilled on... on every aspect of Black Lightning. I had to answer questions about stuff I had written 40 years ago. Um, and then I, I went into Salim's office uh, where, where he asked me if I wanted to do a, a screen test to play Peter Gamby. Oh, jeez. I wish I had done it because it would have been awful, but I would have had the clip. Uh, <laughs> but I, I told Salim, you know, that's a really bad idea, Salim. Um, and then, they, of course, they heard James Remar, who has told some people that he only got the role because he looks like me. <laughs> this is James being way too hard on himself and way 
too kind to me. Oh um, man, but it's it's lovely to hear. Lovely to it hear. Was, you know, I I started corresponding with many of the cast members, uh, who couldn't. The people on the show, cast, crew, writers, could not have been kinder to me. They have shown me more love and respect than I had ever gotten from the comic book industry. Um, I I had to shame D.C. in the bringing me to Washington, D.C. for the premiere of the show, and they did not make any room for me on any of the panels they held that weekend. Uh, My only official function was a photo op with the entire cast, which is where I met the entire cast, and, and again, so wonderful, these people so dedicated to the same type of stories that I want to tell. Um, and then I went to, you know, we went to the premiere, um, and then we went to the after party where I bonded with various cast members. Um, my son was very impressed that, that actual celebrities wanted selfies with me. Um, <laughs> Orlando Jones was a big comics fan, and, and we become friendly up. Orlando Jones uh, took a selfie with me, and that really impressed my son. And, in, you know, I'm going, oh, it's no big deal, Eddie, it's no big deal. Uh, and inside I'm going, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> well, now, um, what do you think, I mean, why do you think the the film industry, or at least the people that you met, the, 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 the crew and the cast on this particular show, why do you think there was so much, I mean, even from Jeff's point of view, so much attention and respect paid to the source material and the creator as opposed to what you were experiencing from the comic book end? Because the comics industry is dumber. Well, that's a pretty basic response. Yeah, okay. Um, Want to go a little more deeply than that? DC Comics has never understood Black Lightning. They've never realized the potential of Black Lightning. Uh, They've never respected the creator of Black Lightning. That's why you get things like DC's best idea for using Black Lightning these days is to make him Batman support Negro in in Batman and the Outsiders. Mm. Uh, totally out of character for the character, but that's how it is. Um, so anyway, I, I you know I go to the premiere. It's wonderful. Uh, Black Lightning, Cold Dead Hands, which. DC editorial does not support very well, but I have great editors on it. I have a great art. My editors were Jim Chadwick and Harvey Richards, too. They gave me the best notes I've ever gotten from I know editors. both of them. Yeah, they're good guys, both. They, you know, every note was to make my story better. It wasn't trying to turn my story into their story. Clayton Henry did a wonderful job drawing both the drama stuff and the superhero stuff. Pete Pantazis, our colorist, just did a wonderful job. Um, But DC Comics did not, you know, when the first issue sold out almost immediately, they did not go back to press on it. They only gave us one variant cover for the six-issue run. Um, So while the book was critically acclaimed, uh, aside from the usual suspects who thought it was an anti-cop book or just don't like the idea of a black hero, uh, it got the best reviews of my career. Uh, let me, let me no, ask you, right. I'm sorry, let me, I, I, I keep interrupting you, but I, I just want to step back for two things. So, so one, you, you had a great team on this particular book that you're talking about. Yes. 
but you had some of the, the stress that you had before. Two things I'd like to define. So one, team, collaboration, credit. There have been occasions when we've all heard different, um, uh, shall we say, different uh, credits given in terms of the creation of the character. And the way you told the story earlier brought this question forward. I've heard Trevor Von Eden's name attached to it. I, yes. I would just like to get that clarified from your, you know, okay. from your own words. Here's here's how I see it. Uh, everything important about Black Lightning was created by me, even before I brought the property to DC. Uh, Trevor is certainly the primary designer of the costume, first costume, uh, the disco era costume, um, but. I, I was the one who wanted the lightning piping and the Captain America boots. Bob Rosakis came up with the Afro mask. Joe Orlando opened up the shirt more because, you know, got to show that black skin. Mm. Uh, although, in all fairness, Joe opened up shirts on, on white characters as well. Joe just thought more skin would sell more comics. Okay. I don't know if he was right or wrong. Yeah. But Joe was such a nice guy that, you know, I was going to argue with him. Uh, Trevor was never listed as a creator of, of the character for the first two years of the character. The day I inquired to DC about buying back the character uh, is the day Trevor Ron Eden became a co-creator. Uh, they literally stopped him in the halls and told him he was now a co-creator. And Trevor said, oh, okay. Uh, now, last time I saw Trevor face-to-face, -face, it was at a Las Vegas convention, uh, Trevor stressed that, you know, he did not consider himself a co-creator of the character, which is great, because I don't consider himself a co-creator of the character either. Uh, I do consider him as having worked very hard on that first series and, and deserves uh, royalties because of that. And when we were negotiating my new agreement, I made sure that Trevor's name was included in the credit, making the change from and to with. So uh -huh. it's created by Tony Isbell with Trevor Von Eden, with being deliberately ambiguous. Uh, but it also means Trevor gets gets paid, which is what I wanted. Uh, I have never disrespected Trevor. Um, when I did the second series, he was my first choice for artist, and they told me he wasn't available, which turned out to be a lie. With wow. this bold dead hands, he was my first choice for artist. And by that point, he had burned bridges at DC, and um, nobody wanted to work with him, not even for a variant cover. And and I stuck my neck out several times, but it was no good. I could never even get him to do a variant cover, you know, have them give him a variant cover to do. Um, I try to look out for him the best I can because he's an important part of Black Lightning's history. Uh, he doesn't always make it easy. Uh, you know, Secret Service coming to visit him at his house, things like that. Uh, in one of his recent Facebook page, he seemed to be considering himself, well, at least he, he, he indicated that he thought my soul, you know, he didn't consider me the sole creator of the character, which is different from what he had told me to my face. He's kind of a mercurial guy. Uh, I will always look out for him to the best of my ability, uh, but co-creator Black Lightning, no. Okay. Um, okay, okay. Like I said, I wanted I wanted to have yeah. that statement made by you so that 
know, because again, as you know, recently, even with uh, McGregor, uh, there's these memes have been popping up on Facebook that have been giving credit for his uh, Black Panther going up against the KKK to Jack Kirby. You know, it's yeah. inaccurate as, as can be. And still a ton of people who were alive when all this went down are still here. So we can say what we can say. But it's just inaccuracy seems to rule the web more often than, than I have. Than I have tried hundreds of times to to correct misconceptions about that. You know, you know, tell people what the here's the official credit line, you know, approved by everybody, created by Tony Isabel with Trevor on Eden. Uh, bleeding cool, uh, you know, which I think it was bleeding asshole. Um, they refuse to put the correct credit down and insist on always calling Trevor co-creator. And every now and then, just because they're pricks, they'll put Trevor's name first. Um, when clearly the character was created before Trevor even came on board. Um, it bothers me that comic book websites will write about a TV show or a movie and fail to create, to credit the comic book creators mm -hmm. of those characters and properties. Well, that's where I was going to go next, too, because uh, with Luke Cage, with Black Panther, with Black Lightning now, there have been uh, this, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, just the Marvel movies in particular have been making just great inroads to to, to billion-dollar productions and millions of new fans who are coming to these characters as movie characters. And, oh, yeah, there's a comic book? Uh, and I, I've actually heard people say, oh, that's nice. They made a comic book based on the movie. <laughs> not quite, not quite. Yeah, so yeah. so here you are going back to this this wonderful experience you were having with the, with the Black Lightning crew. Um, here you are now with this character, finally 40 years later in another medium and 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 you feel the work you've set up the work that you you established the character the the core values of that character in his world you feel are being respected in this particular uh uh creation there's so much of me in that TV series, plus all the wonderful stuff they have brought. And I'm not, I was on set for the last week of filming the, of the second season. I, they, I was at the rap party where they actually had me address the crowd, um, which was you know, a trip because there's hundreds of people who have jobs because of something I did 40 years ago. Oh, uh, and they appreciate that. The joke going around was that I created more jobs than Trump, and people actually got paid for those jobs. Uh, so, I mean, I couldn't, you know, I, I've become close with, with Marvin Jones, who plays Tobias Whale. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I am friendly with Christine Adams. I'm friendly with just about the entire cast. Um, I go on the set. And, uh, you know, everybody, you know, apparently everybody on the set was told I was coming. I'm wandering around the back lot. The set designer, you know, recognized me and said, would you come into the construction area? Some of my crew members have brought comic books for you to sign. No, uh, I spent two days sitting behind Salim McKeel and his monitors as he was directing scenes that I can't tell you about because they're for the finale. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. At one point on a Tuesday morning, I saw them constructing a set that we filmed on Tuesday night. Jeez. And these are long ass days. These are like 12, 13 hour days. Um, China, 
the lovely China was filming a, a scene with uh, Black Lightning. She is lightning. She's got her costume. She comes out of the scene, sees me, literally squeals and runs over to hug me. <laughs> I'm wearing a Pops Barbershop shirt. Uh, That's from Luke Cage? I worked on Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I told her, well, I created Misty Knight. And she hugs me again and says, you're even cooler than I thought you were. Oh, fantastic. fantastic. Uh, and then she has her uncle, I think it was her uncle, take a picture of us, which is you can see on my Facebook page and blog and <laughs> any place else I can put it because <laughs> it's a great picture. My favorite picture is a shot of me wearing the Black Lightning vest. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in the... In Peter Gamby's tailor shop, uh, underneath it, there's you know what I call the lightning layer, um, and there's these big tubes that hold the costumes. So they put me into the into this black lightning vest, which was worn by Cress Williams in the initial episodes. But he's a very large man, and I'm a very small man, so you know they had to get him a new vest pretty soon now it's used by the stand-in it's used just for lighting purposes um it's got switches on it that light it up although you know when when Cress is wearing his suit very often those lights are digitally enhanced mm-hmm. in post-production and they took a picture of me wearing the vest inside one of the uniform pods uh which one of my friends referred to as the Tony Isabella action figure in its original packaging, <laughs> uh, and which somebody else described, you know, and, and we started describing that this is a, you know, a new character for next season of Black Lightning, Short Circuit. Is he friend or foe? Uh, <laughs> everybody, That's everybody on the set mm. was so kind to me and so wonderful. Um, I had lunch one day with Christine Adams. Um, the the second day I had lunch with Marvin Jones and Bill Duke. Bill freaking Duke. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, we talked basketball. We talked football. We talked comics. We talked uh, lynchings, you know, in the past. Uh, Bill recommended a book on, on lynchings in America to me that is a book I could only read a few pages at a time because it's really tough to take. Yeah. Um, yeah. But just fascinating conversations. Um, you know, Mara Brock Akeel came to the set. Um, they wanted to put me in a scene, but there was only one scene that had extras. Uh, and I can't tell you what the scene was. Because but it's a, okay, right, he's got another one, another secret there. Another secret. Uh, there's only one scene that they filmed the days I were there that had extras, and I would have been totally, totally wrong to be one of the extras. As I put it at the time, I'm too short to be a stormtrooper. Oh wow! Okay, okay. But so, they want me—they want me to come back to the set as often as I can in the third season. They said they'll definitely do a cameo with me. Uh, some people say they should write a part for me. I'm thinking, you know, Grace—the character Grace, uh, played by Chantel Tui, i think it's pronounced. Um, you know, she reads comic books. She's got to buy them somewhere. I own a comic shop for 11 years. I could probably, you know, play that role. Little did you know that owning that shop would prepare you for your screen debut. <laughs> or, I mean, I've, I've, I've suggested other things. I said, you know, I could be the Pierce family's wacky next-door neighbor. Oh, uh, that would be funny. Uh, other people have suggested other things. Uh, Keep it clean, uh, <laughs> 
I basically, you know, I, you know, my big, my big hope is that I get to act. You know, I love it. You know, if I don't get to do a scene with Marvin, who's my close friend, or one of the amazing, beautiful women on this show, then I basically want to be beat up or killed. Oh, well, hey, I hope you're not killed because that that would be hard to watch for me. Uh, beaten up, I have to say, based on the stories you've told this afternoon, you've had practice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, from childhood yeah, yeah, forward. I've, I've, I've had a few a few uh, challenges in my life, let's say. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. I couldn't be happy. I mean, this thing. If you want authentic Black Lightning, since I am no longer writing Black Lightning stories for DC, and and that is entirely their, their doing, I would write Black Lightning stories till the day I die. Mm. Um, the only places you're going to find authentic Black Lightning is in Scooby-Doo Team-Up number 46 by Sholly Fish. Wow. Which, which is, you know, Sholly Fish, Scooby-Doo Team-Up is my favorite DC comic. Sholly writes hilarious stories, but treats the guest stars with respect. Gotcha. Um, and so I recommend Scooby-Doo Team-Up number 46, and then the Black Lightning TV series, because... The TV series and my own work, we share the same core values. I wrote a younger Black Lightning in my most recent series. There is the older hands. man with is the older man. Yeah. But but you know, it's the same character. They have the same core values. Tony, it it seems to me and, and again I don't want to keep making comparison to McGregor, but I do find it interesting. Forty years ago or thereabouts with the Panther with McGregor and then same amount or close to that same amount of time you're back there creating Black Lightning here you guys are at this point basically like a year or so apart enjoying the fruits of that labor and being able to stand tall next to that material that core source material that the that the movie and in your case the TV series are based on I think that's fantastic. And I think the other thing it says, which ties into the show, is that if you tell a solid, strong, good story, if you commit to the quality of the story and to the characters, that it has a life beyond the day it was first created. And obviously, you know, your material in the comics, as well as this character, has resonated with a couple of generations and is still resonating now even stronger and thank god you're around to see it well i am as happy for don as i am for myself because don took took even tougher knocks than i did and is still standing mm. so i am thrilled for don i love seeing him at conventions uh we both regret to our younger selves and it's embarrassing yes but, but i'm th i'm right there so i'm with you right there so <laughs> you've seen it yeah but i will say this uh, I am struggling with the fact that my career is bipolar. The TV people, the TV show people adore me. They treat me with great love and respect. Uh, I do many, you know, I've been interviewed by many TV reporters, same thing, by radio reporters, podcasts. Uh, the fans are great to me. Most conventions are great to me. When I speak at schools and libraries, Everyone's great to me. And then we go to the comics industry where apparently I've, I've you know, my shelf life has expired. Uh, mm. And I don't understand it except to say that comics don't make sense. 
and never have. Uh, I'll find other things to do. It's not my first love, which is writing comics, but I'll find other things to do. I'm currently working on a book called Black Lightning and My Road to Diversity, which will discuss my career with characters of color. We'll talk about some of the African-American creators that nobody knows about or mm. few people know about, um, such as E.B. Stoner, the pulp uh, illustrator who you know, had a story in Action Comics number one. Mm. Um, mm. And I'll talk about the creation, my work with these characters, the creation of some of these characters, and then, you know, finish up with, with my writing about the current diversity in comics. Um, I think it'll be a great book. Um, look and I have other books I can write. I've got a publisher who literally, literally publish any book I want to write. Uh, so I, I'll always be busy. I'll always have things to do. Um, but it does pain me that at a time when my, my greatest creation is enjoying this great success, that DC Comics can't wrap their brain around the fact that maybe nobody there knows the character better than I do, and nobody there is more qualified to write the character than I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... I wasn't going to ask this question, not that it's a dangerous question or anything like that, but it, it does sort of speak to me. Do you feel that what you're saying is based, or, or their reaction or non-reaction, is based on the fact that they're really looking at these things as IPs or as product and not as creations and not as anything that has a soul or that, that has any solid value to it other than how many units? In, in other words, they're looking at it as completely as an item, a thing. And, and well, not having any other connection to it? I try not to try to figure out what they're thinking because it would make my brain hurt. <laughs> I will say what I have observed is that there's a whole country between New York City and Los Angeles. And the people working in New York and Los Angeles don't understand that there's this entire country between them. People who work on this material, people who are in positions of power... Um, they just assume that they're always right. Mm. They just assume that they have some magical savant, editorial savant abilities that lets them know what's right for the characters. I have had people at DC Comics tell me that they know what they're doing with Black Lightning is out of character for them, but they're convinced that that's the way to go. They're diminishing the character uh, and again, I look at it that, okay, millions of people enjoy the Black Lightning TV series every week. If you're lucky, 40,000 people will buy Batman and the Outsiders. Wow. Um, which is not to say that my comics, you know, that a new Black Lightning series by me would sell better than that 40,000 copies. It might not sell as well because it doesn't have Batman. It would still be a more honest treatment of Black Lightning, something that could be collected and sold for many years to come. Um and certainly to me, that's a better way to go from a business standpoint than, you know, to do what they're doing. But again, I, I'm not going to try to speculate on why they think the way they think. It makes my head hurt. <laughs> and we don't want to do that. The comics book industry has never made sense to me in the 46 years I've been in it. I don't expect it ever will. I just take pride in the fact that I have done good and great work 
that is appreciated by a large number of people that every week I get to see my name on a great TV show, uh, which is a, a weekly dream come true. Mm. Uh, I've got it pretty good. I've got a great family. I've got great friends. I always have some something on my desk that I'm working on. Um, a lot of guys of my generation cannot say that. Yeah, yeah, um, I hear you. But at 67 years old, I, I plan to keep going as long as I can. Well, then you're going to have to do that a lot. Um, I said this to you once before that, you know, in, in the almost 30-some-odd years that I've known you, you've remained consistently an honorable, lovable, and when I say lovable, I don't mean like, you know, like he's a cute little teddy bear. Uh, I mean that you have always I been... I Well, that's to some folks. I don't know, Tony, you know. <laughs> But I, I actually, you know, have enjoyed the fact that you've always been a genuine, honorable, fun-loving, decent human being. And watching the years and knowing some of the things that have come at you, you know, yeah, you can, you can get feisty when you need to. And that's all good because that's, that's, that's the human thing. But you still remain an, an honorable man of integrity and a loving human being. And, and I've enjoyed that. And I feel quite blessed to have met you and to have known you this long and to and I'm I rejoice in seeing what's happening for you and as you know I feel very strongly about Don too I love him he's like a little brother to me and I think it's great that this period in in both your lives but talking to you directly right now I'm happy to have the opportunity to tell you that I'm happy that this period is happening for you and at this time you've certainly earned it you've worked hard for it and I there are not a lot of people I feel that deserve it more than you. So, uh, you know, three cheers for that. And I hope that this, the run of the show goes even longer because I want to hear reruns for years, you know, and I, and I can't wait. If they bring you out there and you're in the show, then that is, that's the episode we'll make sure we buy the DVD set for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I am looking forward to being on the set more. Uh, they actually gave me my own office while I was there this time, and not that I ever used it, because, you know, why stay in the audience? I only had two days on the set. I wanted to see as much of the set as possible. Gotcha. But if I go back there, I probably will use that office more. Well, if you don't, I'll come out and I'll use it. <laughs> <laughs> really, I don't think I'm up to 12 and 13-hour days, day in and day out. <laughs> well, come on, Tony, you know, live a little. <laughs> Anyway, Tony, it's it's been really great, and thank you so much. You know, as I admitted you, to Alex. folks before, I, I I blew it on the tech end. You know, and and thank you for coming back and sharing even more this time. So this was great. Um, I really appreciate it, and I love you, buddy. And you know, the the best to you and your family. And we will be talking about some things going on in my creative life too, because you said some things that, that rang a bell. So we'll we'll have that separate conversation soon. Okay, I look forward to it. Well, you're going to be at Act Back, right? Uh, yes, I am. I will be in Philly so, in May. We absolutely, do, we will share meals and good times there. Yes, we will absolutely. As my, if not before that, but certainly then. Yeah, that that that's fantastic. So, folks, if you uh, just just to push this one, uh, please look for Tony's cold dead hands, black lightning cold dead hands. Not Tony's cold dead hands. I'm sorry. Get that back. His book, Black Lightning Cold Dead Hands. Please, if you don't have it, go get it. Uh, definitely keep watching Black Lightning the TV series. And Tony, at some point, if you if you, we find out you're going out there and you're going to be shooting, let me know because I will announce it to the world as well as I know you will. Uh, and uh, again, thank you everybody for stopping by and listening. And Tony, as always, a great great time talking to you. Thank you, Alex. Okay, take care, buddy. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye, everybody. <laughs>